It's now my privilege to open God's Word with you. I encourage you now to take your Bibles and turn there towards the end of your Bible, 1 John. We're in the book of 1 John, chapter 3, in verses 11 through 24. That is our passage for today, 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. And uh, we continue to make our way through this letter, through this um, letter of sorts, perhaps maybe even a sermon written to be widely read among the people there in John's day. But here we find ourselves today in 1 John chapter 3. I want to begin reading in verse 11. John writes, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because, he keeps his because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this passage that it would instruct us in the call that we have, the command that we've been given to love one another. So Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive, transform us that we would be more and more a people who love well. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. I don't know who it was exactly, but whoever it was that said, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand, made an honest observation. The call we have to love people can be a huge challenge. People are difficult. People are messy. People are needy. Even church folk can be hard to love. Our own family members can push our capacity to love them well, even to a breaking point at times. Yet, as Christians, 
we are called to love one another. No strings attached, no prerequisites given. We are called to love, to love those who are easy to love and those who are difficult to love. We are called to love, not when it's convenient, not when we get around to it, but we're called to be a people marked by love for others. The calling we have to love others, regardless of how they may or may not love us back, is uniquely Christian. Ira Gillette was a missionary to East Africa in the mid-1900s. He once returned home to report on the various missionary activities overseas, and he related to the church that he was speaking to a very interesting phenomenon that he, that he saw. Repeatedly, Gillette had noticed how groups of people would walk past government hospitals and travel many extra miles to receive medical treatment from the missionary doctors. He finally asked a particular group why it was that they walked extra distance when the same treatments were available at the government clinics. And their reply was interesting. They said, the medicines may be the same, but the hands are different. The hands are different. And that's exactly what John is getting at here in this call for us, a repeated call throughout the Bible, a call to love one another. It's, it's this call to have different hands, different hands governed by different hearts that love others and, and love well. Love is a constant theme throughout the book of 1 John. We're gonna see it again just in a few weeks. We've seen it before. And here we see this command to love is brought back to the forefront. This was not a new teaching, John says that. For this is the message that you have had, that you have heard from the beginning. Go all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures. There in Leviticus 19 we see this call to love one another. It was not a new teaching, it was a teaching that was being reiterated time and time again that was uniquely Christian and that was to mark those who follow Jesus. And that, friends, will simply be our focus this morning. As Christ followers, we are called to exhibit a Christ-like love. We are called to love one another. And in this calling that we have to love one another, that we see that there in verse 11, this is a message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This command that we're given, I think what we're gonna see in this passage is that John identifies really five reasons Christian love is indispensable to the Christian life. Five reasons Christian love, this call to love one another, is indispensable to the Christian life. And that's what I wanna walk through with you this morning. Reason number one we see here is the contrast that love makes. The contrast that love makes. John command, John's command here for Christians to love each other, to love one another, is met immediately by a contrast. Look at verse 11. This is a message you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain. There's a contrast, an immediate contrast. Love one another, don't be like Cain. The story of Cain and Abel is found in Genesis chapter 4. You can go back to the beginning and read through that. They were brothers, 
and both these brothers brought sacrifices to God. However, God only accepted Abel's sacrifice because it was done in the right way, whereas Cain's was not accepted. As a result of that, Cain harbored a jealous hatred in his heart toward his brother and ended up murdering him, killed him. Killed his brother because of hatred. Cain's example here in verse 12 is an example that is the opposite of the command we're being given. Love one another, don't be like Cain who hated his brother and killed him. He's the example here of the opposite of love. He was marked by this hatred towards someone who did what was right in God's eyes and therefore murdered him and there, as a result, failed this test of love. Love is a distinguishing mark of the Christian. It's a major characteristic that sets us apart from the world. As John goes on to say, he says, after, after he's talking about Cain, don't be like Cain. And he was the evil one. He murdered his brother. Why did he do it? Because his deeds were evil. His brothers were righteous. And then verse 13, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised that the world has a Cain-like hatred toward those who do that which is good and right in God's sight. He's making this contrast here. Love is Christian. Hatred is of the evil one. There are these two things that are polar opposites. And he's saying here, Cain is the example of the one you're not to be like. Don't be like Cain. Don't harbor a hatred in your heart, a jealousy, an anger in your heart towards others that could lead to murder. We know Jesus talks about that in Matthew. Matthew chapter five talks about anger being equated to murder in the heart. It's a clear warning for us. It's, it's an interesting warning because you have the command to love marked by this contrast of Cain who hated and it's a warning for us, it's a command and a warning. Love one another, don't hate, don't be like Cain. And friends, I think this is a helpful command for us because in many, in many cases, we can be more like Cain than we tend to think. Have you ever resented someone that seems to be doing everything right in a godly way? I have. It irritates me that they seem to walk in righteousness better than me, right? You ever had that kind of attitude towards someone where you're like, man, they, they just always pray, they always witness, they always seem to be doing things, they just, scripture comes out of their mouth, and you just kind of get irritated that they're walking in righteousness, at least outwardly. They seem to be always thoughtful, prayerful, hopeful, joyful, faithful, and all that they do has a righteousness, a true righteousness exhibited from another Christian ever bothered you? It's this Cain-like jealousy that begins to form in our hearts. And we must be careful that we do not allow jealousy or envy to rob us of Christ-like love. The Christian is called to love one another with no strings attached. Those who resent those who are jealous, those who are envious are walking down a dangerous path that leads to hatred and worse. 
So friends, consider your own heart today and examine it to see whether or not the seeds of hatred have taken root. Because I think we could read that and say, well, I'm not like Cain, I don't hate. I'm not gonna kill somebody today. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand what was at work in Cain's heart long before he took the life of his brother. He was walking in a, in a heart attitude that had a resentment because his brother was walking in righteousness, pleasing the Lord, and he despised it because he wasn't like that. He had evil in his heart. So take this command that we should love one another, but also take it with this contrast of warning here. Love one another, don't be like Cain. Not in the sense of just taking and killing someone, don't do that, but, but be aware of the heart factors that are at play long before that even happens. The envy, the jealousy, the anger, hatred. Are you harboring hatred in your heart towards another? John is telling us that is not Christian. That is not of God. So we see that the contrast that love makes it distinguishes very clearly apart from the one who hates, love one another. Number two, we see the confirmation that love brings. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised that the world, being like Cain in many respects, hates righteousness. We know, verse 14, that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Christian love stands out as distinct in the world. And John, again, is making a contrast of sorts between that which is, that which is love and that which is hatred, between those who are in Christ and those who are of the world. And he goes on to say that love is not only a command, love one another, it's a confirmation. Those who love are marked by life, not death. Love is the mark, a mark, a very important mark, of one who abides in life, abides in Christ, whereas hatred is the mark of one who abides in death. John is giving us a very important test here regarding our Christian assurance. He's saying that love is a proof that one belongs to Jesus. It's the fruit of the true Christian. We know that Galatians chapter five, that the fruit of the spirit is love. The opposite is true. If you lack love, if love is not a trait of who you are, then you are demonstrating that you have not passed from death to life. And in John's mind here, there are only two types of people in the world, those who love and those who don't, those who hate. The true believer loves. He loves God, he loves people, loves neighbors, even, as Jesus says, we're called to love our enemies. In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus says, by this, all people will know you are my disciples. How? If you love one another. Not if you attended Sunday school 50 weeks out of 52. Not if you know your Bible verses for the week. 
Not if you do this or do that. He says, people are gonna know that you're truly my disciples, that you're truly Christians, that you've been brought from death to life if you love one another. Love is that characteristic that says Christian. It's an important litmus test. Do you love others? Think about that question. It's an important one, it's a good one, for you not only to ask yourself, but I would even say, ask those who know you best. Ask them today, friends, family, whoever knows you well. Ask them if you exhibit love well. And if you're one of the ones being asked, be honest. Be honest. It's a mark of a Christian. We want to know, right? We want to know, am I loving? I think we, we give our health, ourselves high marks, right? If you're gonna grade your own paper, hey, I'm gonna make an A. But ask someone who knows you well. Hey, am, am I a loving person? Where do I lack love for others? This is one of those things you don't want to ignore because it's central to our identity as believers. Now listen, not everyone is going to exhibit love in the same way. You're not always going to be emotional. Everybody's gonna look different. The love is gonna look different from people, from person to person, but listen, it will be present if you're truly a Christian. It will be present. Love is the way of the believer. It doesn't mean that you'll always like everyone or that you will never be angry with someone, but it does mean that the settled disposition of your heart towards others will be that of love. That of love. And that presence of love is a confirmation God is kind to us and he gives us certain proofs so that we can check ourselves and evaluate whether or not we're of him. And this is one of them. Am I loving people well? Am I doing it with the right motive? Am I loving not because of what I get in return? There's so many Christian things out there that, that get that wrong. They're like, love in this way and, and maybe people will love you back in the way you wanna be loved. No, we're called to love one another. Period. No strings attached, no prerequisites. Doesn't matter how loving they are back to you, we're called to love them. The confirmation love brings. It's a trait of a Christian. Number three, I want you to notice John goes on and talks about the action love requires. In verses 16 through 18, he says, By this we know love. We know love that he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. After John has made his point that love is a characteristic that distinguishes Christians from the world, he goes further to show us how love is applied. And he basically says, when it comes to this idea of love, talk is cheap. That's basically what he says. But it's not love in word or talk, but in deed 
and truth. It comes to this idea of love, it's not a concept, it's, acti- it's action. We don't love as the world loves. People talk about love all the time. And oftentimes, they're not talking about biblical love. The, the love that the world talks about is a very selfish love, self-love. It's often oriented towards self, not towards others. It's become a very selfish reality. It's, defi- it's defined around feelings and ideas that, that, have, that elevate our own desires above that of others. However, when you read the Bible, we know that love originates with God. Therefore, he's the one that gets to define what it actually is and how it's applied. And he says two things here that I think are important for us to see about love. We could, we could talk about many other things, but there are two things that he highlights here for us regarding Christian love, attributes of Christian love that, that, that are different than what we see in the world. Number one, he says that love is sacrificial. Love is sacrificial. He says, by this we know love. He's about to say, say, by this example, right? By this, how do do we know what love looks like? That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. While self-love is that which dominates our culture and values today, the love God calls us to is sacrificial in nature. John says, by this we know love. He points to Jesus giving his life as a sacrifice for sinners on the cross. Jesus himself spoke of this kind of love in John chapter 15. Verse 12, he said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So Jesus says, love one another like I loved you. And then he goes on to say, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So what you see here is this, just as Cain was the example of what love is not, Jesus is the example of what love is. Cain was out for himself. Jesus was given for others. Lay down his life. Paul reinforces this in Romans chapter five, verse eight, where it says, God shows, he demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So friends, if you want to understand what this this call to love looks like, look no further than the gospel of Jesus Christ the perfect son of God sent from heaven to live life as a man on this this earth perfectly and yet died on a cross bearing the weight and penalty of sin as a sacrifice that we might be cleansed of our sin and welcomed into God's family. Love is a self-denying sacrificial act that does good for the sake of others. Love is that. It's when we give ourselves for the good and for the well-being of others without any expectation of, of something in return. It's not arbitrary. Love leads us to give ourselves to meet the needs of others, even at our own expense and peril. 
Now, think about this example. Imagine you were sitting on the edge of a pier. You're just sitting there, enjoying the day. Maybe not today, it's a little warm, but you're just sitting there, enjoying the day, and someone runs past you off the pier, jumps into the water, and in order to prove their love for you, they, dr- they drown. That would be really strange. Like you weren't drowning, you were sitting there, enjoying the day. But they wanted to prove their love for you, so they do that. That would just be odd. We would not equate that as loving. We would equate that as, as being really weird. That's not love at all. But imagine this though, imagine that you had fallen off that same pier, were in threat of drowning, and this same person runs and jumps to save your life at the risk of their own and saves you. At that point, we would see love in action because it's sacrificing one's own safety for the good and the well-being of another. It's sacrifice. It was not a sacrifice in the, the previous example, but this would be sacrificial. There's a connection between the sacrifice which love makes and the necessity that warrants it. And we think about the sacrifice of Jesus. The reason that Jesus' own sacrifice on the cross is the greatest demonstration of love is because at the cross, Jesus was not dying some arbitrary death just as an expression of his love for us. I mean, that would be weird. Had we not sinned and and fallen short of God's glory and Jesus said, I think the way I'm gonna show my love for you, I'm gonna die on a cross. That would just be odd. No, he's dying to pay a payment, to pay a penalty that was on us. We were under the burden of sin and its consequences. And Jesus goes and he takes that upon himself as an expression, as a sacrifice, as a sacrificial expression of his love for us. He meets a need that we had sacrificially. He pays that payment. And so, say all that to say this, is that the kind of love that you demonstrate for others? Is that the kind of love that flows from your heart? Sacrificial kind of love. Seeking to meet people where they are, even at the, at the cost of your own well-being? Or does your love have strings attached? Does your love carry terms and conditions with it? See, the kind of love that we're called to doesn't have strings attached. It doesn't have terms and conditions. It gives ourselves for the good of others. It denies self and it sacrifices, just like Jesus did for us. Love is sacrificial, not selfish. Number two, love is practical. Love is practical. Again, John's saying, he says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. There's the sacrifice. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see somebody that has a need and you're like, I hope that works out for them. He's saying, how do you have the love of God in you if you see a need and you don't seek to meet it in some way? Little children, let us not love in word and talk. Talk is cheap, but let's love in deed and in truth. Love compels us to do good to others. David Allen said it quite well in his commentary on this text. He said, saying we love everyone in general 
may, be become, may become an excuse for loving no one in particular. I think that's something we Christians need to hear. We talk about love a lot as Christians. Yes, I love people. But I think sometimes we so generalize love in, at, at that general level that we love no one well in particular. The church today is often characterized by a polite civility, not necessarily a genuine sacrificial love. Love, brothers and sisters, is deeper than polite civility. The nature of love is one that listens, one that looks, one that cares, one that is empathetic, one that gives and one that acts. Again, John says that if we have the world's goods and see our brother and sister in need, yet we close our hearts against them, how does the love of God abide in him? The kind of love Jesus calls us to compels us to minister to the needs of others. Listen, love is meaningless without action. That's John's point there again in verse 18. As John calls his readers to love in practical, tangible ways, again, what he's doing, he's giving the gospel as the motivation for that, isn't he? In essence, he says, Jesus gave his life to meet our greatest need. How then can we turn around and see our brothers in need and close our eyes, literally our feelings, more literally our entrails? Like, how can we close off our feelings towards someone in need when our greatest need has been met at the cross? Serving people, giving people food, shelter, water, helping people find jobs, tutoring, addressing social needs is not doing the great commission, but it is applying the great commandment. It's fruit of the gospel's work in our own lives so that we seek to meet needs around us. That's just what Christians do. Because we've been loved, we want to love others. Our hearts have been taken captive to Christ. And as a result, our hearts have been transformed by the power of the gospel. And as such, the heart that has been changed now controls our hands. You notice the language that John uses. See your brother in need and close your heart against him. How does the love of God abide? If our hearts are closed off to, to people, then you can guarantee our hands will be. James understood this there in James chapter two, in verse 14, says similar, what good is it my brothers if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says go in peace, be warmed and filled, Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith, if it does not have works, is dead. Love, we could say the same thing. Love, if it does not have works, is not love. Brothers and sisters, how are you demonstrating love in practical ways? There's a lot of categories we could think about. 
and we could never fill every category, but just three broad categories I want you to think through. Because the Bible, the, here we see it, just this language to loving our brothers and sisters, loving one another, seems to be more of a, a Christian-focused love here in this text. And we know that, that from passages like Galatians 6, verse 10, we're to do good to all, especially those of the household of God. So first and foremost, your love towards fellow Christians. How are you loving fellow brothers and sisters? What does that look like? How well are you doing that? Then you think about the call to love neighbor, love our neighbor. Think about that exhortation that we have and then the example that we're given in the Good Samaritan. Someone in need could be a fellow Christian, it could not, and maybe it's not. How are we serving and loving compassionately our neighbor? And then you get to a passage like Matthew chapter five, verse 43 and 44, where Jesus says, love your enemies. It's one thing to love those who do good to you, but I say love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. I think number one's fairly easy to do. Number two is more challenging. Number three is very hard. Just think about some examples. I, I think about Christians loving Christians well, just the way that you've, you've mobilized to serve the Reichard family and the ways that we have been praying and, and practical things that are happening. Just the way that you've mobilized for that effort is a glorious testimony to the love you have for a brother and his family. Think about loving neighbor. I think about the opportunity we have through work life to bless those in our community who are at disadvantage, who are struggling, how we can love them well by in, 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 intervening into their lives at a pivotal moment with the hope of the gospel, but also in very practical ways to help them get a job. Think about our enemies, those who would hate like Cain hated his brother. Remember, he says, don't be surprised that the world hates you. This is verse 13. And then Jesus, you, you, you take all this to, and you say, well, those who actually hate you, we're called to love them too. That's Christian. There's many examples of, of that. I like what Preston Sprinkle wrote. He said, we love our enemies, do good to those who hate us, bless those who curse us, extend kindness to the ungrateful and flood evil people with mercy, not because such behavior will always work at confronting injustice, but because such behavior showcases God's stubborn delight in undelightful people. When we love people who don't love us back, it's a display of God's love for the unlovely. Love is practical. It does good to those in need. Then I want you to see number four, the assurance that love gives in verses 19 through 22. He said in verse 16, by this we know love. And then now in verse 19, he says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because 
We keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Some think that John has moved on somewhat to a different topic now in verse 19. And he addresses the conscience of the Christian. But I think that when you consider the passage, he still has the topic of love in his mind. Now, the interpretation of verses 19 and 20 have been quite a challenge as to what is John saying here. He says, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. So he's saying, here's a way for you to know if you are a Christian. So that's simple enough. For whenever our heart, though, condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. That's the verse that has tripped people up. Even Luther and Calvin disagreed on what it meant. It's obvious that he's returning to the theme of assurance and he's addressing the conscience that can often trip us up and condemn ourselves before God. In verse 19, he's saying, by this we shall know the truth and reassure our heart before God. By what? By our practice of love. How we love one another. John is pointing to love as a confirmation and an assurance of our faith. It's a type of test. But he goes on to say in verse 20 that there's a point in time for many Christians where our hearts may condemn us. And when they do, he says, God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. And the reason this is a hard passage to decipher is because there's two very different perspectives as to what he's meaning here in verse 20. Some think he's, he's giving words of comfort. Basically this. Some of you hear this command to love and you realize how miserable you fail at it. And therefore your heart condemns you. You know you're supposed to love, but you realize you're not loving good enough. So what do you do? You look to God who is greater than your heart because he knows everything. He knows even your motives. So be assured that even when your heart condemns you, you can have comfort because God knows all things. So that's, a, that's, a, that's one take. The other take is the opposite of that. Basically, verse 20 saying, you think your heart condemns you, God knows everything. That's not the half of it because God knows your heart perfectly and he knows that you are a lot worse than you think. Again, it's hard to say which one because both are true ideas and both could be read from these verses, both perspectives. I think it's best to see this here is that John is concerned here to address the conscience of the Christian. He's also in concerned, as we see the greater context, to encourage believers that they can have confidence before God even when their conscience condemns them. Some people's conscience is wound tight, right? And when you hear this command to love, you just think of the many ways that you're not loving well enough and you just condemn yourself. Some Christians are like that. Their conscience is tight. They condemn themselves, they condemn other people. They just, they're never good enough. And John's saying, hold, hold tight. One of the ways that you can be assured of your standing before God is through your love for others. And even when that falls short, I think, I think more of the comfort is what we're seeing here because you're wanting to encourage the Christian, not condemn them. I think he's saying that even your heart condemns you, keep on loving because that's what reassures that you belong to God. Loving others well will help you keep your heart clean and free from condemnation. 
And if it's by our actions, our, our loving, compassionate actions that we know we're living in the truth and can be confident before God. And even when we condemn ourselves, we can know that God knows all things and we can rest assured in him because ultimate assurance comes from him. The assurance that love gives, it's an assuring mark of the Christian. And then we see the obedience that love expresses in verse 23 and 24. And this is his commandment. So back to verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he's commanded us. So there's love again. So I don't think he's left that topic. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. John refers here to the commandment, both in verse 22 and verse 23. He clarifies the commandment that he's referring to in verse 23. That we believe in the name of his son, God's son, Jesus Christ, and two, that we love one another just as he's commanded. These two commands are the overarching command of this letter. So one of the things that you can say that John is calling us to overall in this letter are two things, that we believe in Jesus and that we keep believing in Jesus, that we keep trusting in the gospel, and two, that we love others and love them well. When we do that, we see several fruits, we see several realities. We see in verse 22 that, that we, we, we know that prayer is, is answered. We see that this is the way that we abide in God. Further obedience will stem from this. And three, that the Holy Spirit confirms in us who we are. When we pursue these two things, believing in Jesus and loving others, there's fruit that comes from that, assuring fruit. Presence of the Spirit is, is, is assuring us. We will further abide in God. We will give ourselves over to further obedience and his commandments. Believing in Christ and having the impulse to love others are evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence in the believer. So friends, I just ask those two questions. Are you believing in Christ? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone, the perfect son of God who came from heaven, lived a life of righteousness, died on the cross as a sacrifice as we seen, to pay the penalty of sin so that all who repent of their sins and put their faith in him would have their sins forgiven and would be reconciled to God. Are you believing that? Is that your trust? Is that your hope? Because if it's not, forget everything else right now. That's what you need. You need to believe in Jesus. And only by believing in Jesus are you going to be able to love in a way that he commands. So if you're not a Christian, pause right now and cast yourself at the mercy of Christ. Trust in him. Believe in him. Be reconciled to God through Christ. That's the command that we're being given. Believe in Jesus. And two, are you loving one another? Is that evident in your life? Are you demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit and how you love those who are unlovable? And even those who are. Is it evident through your sacrifice, through your, through your sacrificial ways, through your practical efforts? 
serving people's needs around you, whether it's your family, whether your friends, coworkers, neighbors, community? Could you be found guilty of loving if that were a crime? You know, I think back to the experience of that missionary to East Africa where the Africans would walk miles past that government medical care just to receive care from the missionaries and they would say the medicine is the same but the hands are different. Fellow Christians, are your hands different? Is it obvious that your hands are different in this world by the way that you love others? And the only way your hands are going to be different is by having a heart that's been transformed by the power of Jesus. Hearts that have been transformed by the love of Christ will produce hands that follow the command of Christ, the command of love, that we love one another. That's central to who we are as followers of Jesus. Let us love one another and do it well. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and thank you for this exhortation, this reminder, this calling to love one another. Father, my prayer right now is we conclude this time. Father, that you would just search our hearts and help us see how well we're doing in this area of love. Talk is cheap, Father, when it comes to love. Lord, everybody talks about love. But you command it, and you command it in a very distinct way. So, Lord, would you search our hearts, our lives? Would you help us see if Christ-like love is flowing from us? And if it's not, Lord, would you help us to confess that and repent? Father, that we would meditate deeply upon the love of Jesus for us, so that our hearts would be motivated by a gospel love. Father, maybe that some are here and they hear this command, these two commands, to love one another, but also to believe in Jesus. Maybe there's someone here today that's not been believing in Jesus. Maybe they realize this morning for the first time that they are a sinner before you, guilty of rebelling against the Creator. Father, would you help them see that their only hope in this life and in the life to come is to be forgiven of their sins through Jesus Christ. Would you lead them to faith in him today? And for those who have believed, would you help us to be a people marked by love? Would you help us to be a church that is characterized by love? Lord, not mere politeness, but genuine, sacrificial, giving love. For your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.